Dadland is a story um, which begins in a Kerry stable in the middle of the Irish War of Independence and ends in a pop-up shop in Shoreditch. Um, it's a place that I have been in most of my life and it was the place, it's a place full of surprises and the one I wanted to take my readers to. Um, living with my dad, Tom Carew was like really being in an eternal game of poker. Uh, you never really knew where you were. He was a maverick, rule-breaking, challenging, uh, razzle-dazzle dad um, that who, he was always testing and teasing us. Um, and at school, I told my teachers he was a spy. Um, I took in these uh, 1945 Indian yellowing newspaper cuttings, which uh, very thrillingly called him the Mad Irishman and Lawrence of Burma. Um, and they described these very dangerous missions in the Second World War in Burma, behind the lines, raising guerrilla resistance. But, of course, we didn't know the half of it. As a child, I had a very close relationship with Dad, and I knew he was out of the ordinary, and I wanted to be too. Um, and it was quite hard to grow out of the need to impress, be more fearless, be more courageous, be wilder, surprise. Dad was, uh, he hated authority um, and sort of taught me by default to distrust it as well. He, his response to everything was always different to everybody else's response. Um, rules were there not just to be broken, but to pit yourself against. It was an intellectual exercise for him. He thought nothing of allowing us to duck out of school for a day if there was something better on. And on one occasion... Um, I skived off to go riding, and uh, on the bus into school the next day, something made me um, open the sick note he'd written to my teacher. Maybe it was a sly way he licked the envelope, but I opened it, one sentence. It said, I'm sorry Keggy wasn't at school yesterday. She had a bad hangover. (laughs) The question is, did he know I would open it? Um, the thing about a brilliant dad does it mean it doesn't necessarily make a brilliant husband. And um, our, our life went very pear shaped. Mum ended up in a psychiatric hospital. I flopped all my A levels. Dad uh, ended up living in a van in London. But I'm going to have to jump all that and uh, fast forward to 2004. Dad um, is 85, and my stepmother has died, with whom I do not get on. And I have access not just to Dad again, but also to his attic. And in his attic are two metal trunks, and in the trunks is another world. Uh, It's photographs I've never seen, documents, audio tapes, gun licences... Uh, marriage and divorce certificates, uh, all my grandfather's diaries from Ireland from 1920. And at the same time, an invitation arrives to take Dad to the 60th Jedburgh reunion, which is in Peterborough. Um, Now, I knew that Dad was in an elite unit of SOE, which is Special Special Operations Executive. And I knew he was a Jedburgh, but I didn't really know what that was. So I take him, and I meet this um, 
extraordinary group of octogenarians and they are heckling in the speeches, disappearing off. They're this wild maverick bunch and it's my first taste of uh, what SOE recruiters were looking for, the unmanageables, the ones that got into trouble. So Jed's were, they were these super trained maverick guerrilla warfare experts and their job they were parachuted at night uh, behind enemy lines to sabotage the Germans and they operated in uh, very discreet teams of three, two officers and a radio operator and their job was to arm, train and raise um, the local partisans into a viable resistance to uh, blow up trains bridges factories, call in the RAF for bombing strikes after they've collected intelligence, uh, do everything and anything to be a thorn in the enemy's side. Um, And I became immersed in this covert world uh, of secret files in the National Archives at the queue, finding out what my dad got up to at 24, 25 years old, jumping out of planes with a Colt 45, canisters of weapons and a cyanide pill in his top pocket. So he cut his teeth in um, France, but in Burma he really makes his mark, and it is much more dangerous. First of all, he's twice the size of the locals and the enemy, um, so, and he's got fo- feet footprints twice the size, so he, there's no way he can blend in like he could in France. He has to rely completely on his Burmese comrades, and... Um, The interesting thing is that once they've got rid of the Japanese, the Burmese are going to set their sights on independence, so they will be looking over their shoulder to be getting rid of their former British colonial masters, you know, the British. So it was a very, very interesting political situation. One golden moment was when I tapped in a different configuration into Google, and up came this SEAC film, Uh, which was a Southeast Asia command, and it was in the Imperial War Museum, and it was of Dad meeting two generals on the Rangoon Road. Well, um, it also also said, Carew wears native dress and is thickly bearded. So I was very excited to go in, and I went. they set you up in a room, and uh, the assistant teaches you how to on-off the projector. I was strangely nervous, and... um, it, we started it running, and it was the Rangoon Road being heavily bombarded. And the only sound we could hear, because it was silent, with the kind of reels go, going round. And then there he was. Um, I see him straight away. He's standing under a tree with two generals. The generals are all spick and span, buttoned up. And Dad's got this kind of very pleased with himself look on his face, a kind of... Um, now who's listening to who kind of look, you know, the real cat that's got the cream. And the assistant had, um, had told me, she's told me that I'm not allowed to photograph the monitor. So, of course, as soon as she's gone out of the room, I do. So Dad was coordinating the Burmese resistance against the Japs with, sorry, the Japanese, but that's, what all the, all the, that's how they used to talk in those days, but um, with Aung San Suu Kyi's father, and in an audio, one of the audio tapes that I had, Dad tells a very simple story about how, why he so loved the Burmese. 
He's sleeping on a bamboo floor, um, and he's, it's late at night on a, in a hut, being hidden by, in a village. And he's got two blankets over him, he's gone to sleep. And late at night, one of his young gorillas comes in late from patrol, sees Dad, takes, without asking, just takes one of the blankets off, rolls up and goes to sleep. Now, it was without hesitation, but... Um, it was totally alien in British culture and Dad's culture for that to have happened without um, worrying about what Dad would think or uh, protocol or uh, deference to rank. And it was so simple in its simplicity um, and so natural to the Burmese with their, in their culture that um, Dad remembered that all his life. So... Yeah, my relationship with um, Dad, well, what happened basically is everything went very pear-shaped. And um, one of the questions really was, was how, with all that charisma and charm and know-how, did he make such a spectacular hash of it in peace? Um, There was no call for guerrilla warfare experts in Hampshire and post-war Britain, and he was used to running the show... So he struggled, and um, he was pretty much down on his luck, but not down on his self-belief or uh, wild schemes. Um, But the family boat capsized, and um, my adult relationship with him struggled with a very bewildering presence of a very controlling stepmother. And so I was able to reconnect with him um, when she died and um, but the trouble was is that it was the same time that dad had begun to have these memory lapses uh, and it was the first signs of his dementia his nature was to write these notes and to outwit it um, and they were very poignant and, and moving there were lots and lots of them um, But as each layer with Dad peeled away, his essential, the core of him, the essential self, still remained. Um, I lost him in the supermarket once, and I go back, and he's halfway down the aisle, and he's standing very close to a lady, and she's leaning away from him, and she's inspecting a laundry basket, you know, the plastic woven trellis type thing. And I I get down the aisle, and I get there just in time. He's still leaning over her shoulder, to hear him say, they leak, you know. <laughs> so he was still very much the same. And even his vocabulary, you know, as it diminished, he still, the few words that he did have were very dad words. They were very positive words, like um, marvellous and thank you and yes, and old-fashioned words like scrumptious. And he took pleasure where he could. And one of them was eating chocolate and... Um, one time he was made very quick work of some chocolate ice cream that I'd dribbled some uh, uh, golden syrup over. And he was going, mm, mm, scrumptious, terribly good. And then I could see him pondering on this word. And he said, how absurd to say terribly good. And then I watched him as he was, I could see him searching for a better word. He went, sexually good (laughs) looking triumphant Um, weaving all these threads um, was really like plaiting the limbs of a wild octopus Um, 
there was so many things. It was the shady 20th century history, the guerrilla warfare, um, our madcap childhood, my mother's breakdown, my appalling relationship with my stepmother, um, the appearances from people like Patricia Highsmith, the the director of the CIA, um, even Jeremy Clarkson crops up. um, And they all went into the dadland pie and things just kept falling in my lap. Unbelievable things that would never survive in fiction. And I thought a lot. I have been thinking a lot about fiction and non-fiction. In fact, we've been talking about it tonight. And it seemed to me that fiction um, is able to reach into some very complex emotional spaces, whereas there's an expectation, not always, but there is an expectation for biography to be cool and reasonable. Well, that real life isn't like that for me. That felt false. It felt... I, and I really wanted true. And I... I wanted to get back not just into Dad's younger skin, but into mine as well. And I wanted a kaleidoscope of memory um, in the same way that we lie in bed and think about things at night, um, where uh, memory replaces chronology, I suppose. Um, It's a brutally candid portrait. And while not everything can be resolved... I think that through blood, fate, and quite a few laughs, uh, laughs um, that we get through. So, it's 1966. <coughs> this probably isn't 1966, but it's 1966. Um, and Dad is in the back of the dormobile buttering bread uh, and butter, obviously, for making sandwiches. And we're having an impromptu family picnic And my friend Katie has brought her mother. And we're all round the back, waiting and hungry. And Dad, knowing the finickety ways of kids, shouts out, who wants what, white or brown? And so my brother Patrick goes, white. My sister Nikki goes, white. Um, My um, (laughs) friend Katie goes, brown. I copy Katie, and I go, brown. And cheese sandwiches issue forth at lightning speed each correct white and brown order to the right person. And then I see Katie sniggering with her mother. She has flipped her brown sandwich over. The other side is white. (laughs) I flip mine over. Guess what? That was Dadland. Thank you very much. (laughs) 